Hello and welcome to Human Nature with me, Rodney Edwards. We share many things in common, don't we? We all experience similar things like love, loss, rejection and success. In this podcast series, I speak to well-known people about some of the things we hold in common. This week, I am joined by Ian Paisley. He's a son, a father, a husband, a brother and one of the best-known politicians on this island. The DUP MP does lead a somewhat colourful life. But who is the really in Paisley? Let's find out in this week's Human Nature. I'm a sister, Rhonda Rangway. I said, Ian, Dad's got me going here. He's, 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 he's slipping away. And she put the phone in my mum was there, put the phone in my dad's. Anything else, she said, bye bye, son. And Martin was, I guess, gave my father the respect he deserved as an older person. And that to me meant a heck of a lot more than all the other nonsense that goes on in politics. They accord a person respect and dignity because of their age and their standing. And it is the case. I remember my father ceased being first minister and left the leadership of the party and the church. It was interesting that people who you would have thought would have been in more regular contact and given contact didn't stay in contact. But Martin McGinnis did make time to keep that contact. To me, that says a lot about the individual. And I could swerve on the road because there was a massive tractor and I went right to the top of the dog, just killed it outright. And I remember stopping the car and getting out and picking a wee dog up. I wept like a baby. Wept like an absolute child over killing that wee dog on, on the road. The perception that some people have of Ian Paisley, you know, they talk mm-hmm. about free holidays and all that kind of stuff. Well, first of all, a lot of it has been self-inflicted by me. And being self-aware, you've got to accept that, you know, if you hadn't made those mistakes, um, people, you know, wouldn't have had those ideas about you. You're a member of the DUP, you're Ian Paisley's son, and here you're praying for Michelle O'Neill. I, I hope that I, on a very personal level, it just shows that I am a person of, of faith, and that that faith is more important to me than all of the political stuff that we get engaged in. How are you? Not too bad, mate. Not too bad at all. And where are you? Um, literally just home from the office. Jeez, tell me about that painting behind you. <laughs> That's King William of Orange crossing the boy. Where did you get that? I've had that for a long, long time. A, a friend of mine um, gave me it oh, probably 20 years ago. I think it must have hung a, an orange hall or something like that there, but it was too big for his house, so he gave me it. I stick out my dining room wall. <laughs> It's a, real, it's a real talking feature over dinner. It provides a suitable backdrop for you then when you're doing these kind of things? Oh, it's a, it is quite good fun, yeah. Yeah. And I see you've still got the beard. Uh, yeah, still got the beard. So how, how have you been? How's the last number of weeks, months been for you? Well, with lockdown in particular, I suppose. Um, I suppose it's been slightly different in that like, most of my work is really interactive with people. So it's had to you know, really take place over the internet and... Uh, with Zoom calls and, uh, and more telephone calls. So it's uh, we've been adapt- adapting to that, which has been uh, a wee bit different because I must say I'm a bit of a people person, so I kind of like meeting people and chatting to them. So but it's, been, it's been incredibly busy. So, like, you know, you put in your, your normal day, you know, office hours, and then still in the evening, the emails just keep coming in because obviously people have finished working and then contacting. 
So you yeah. have my magazine as I'm 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night still about stuff, you know? Yeah. So just a, a constant request. And people need fast dancers nowadays, you know? So tell me then, just to, to, to begin, tell me about childhood. What was childhood like for Ian Paisley? And, and what do you remember? What's your earliest memories of growing up? A very, very happy childhood. I mean, I was the youngest of five, but I had a twin brother. And my sister was about 14, 13, 14 months older than me, so we were almost like triplets. Um, uh, so a uh, very, very happy childhood. Um, pastor's house. But my, my, my earliest memory is definitely very, very happy. Also, I mean, things like, for example, I mean, uh, my dad was in prison three or four years after I was born. So, you know, I, I, I do remember that. Um, I do have, uh, have those memories. Did, did that upset you? Upset you seeing your father behind bars? I, I think that, 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 that's an question. Because I don't think as a child you, you, you grasp that concept. Um, my parents were so close and, and, and kind of so loving. It was such an environment that we felt secure. I think if you feel secure as a child, the, the upset, if you like, is mitigated. And uh, I think that, that's basically what happened. And that, that we were very, very secure um, home life. That uh, those things really, you know, the, the upset was, was taken away. I was sitting in the kitchen a few weeks ago at my mum and dad's house. I was chatting to my mum and um, over a wee cup of tea. And I looked out the, the kitchen window. When we were growing up, when you looked out that kitchen window, first of all, it had one-way glass on it. Secondly, there was a police hut outside the window with a sergeant hut with two police officers sitting on it. And then there was barbed wire and all that stuff around it, all the, the, the security around it. And that stuff has all been taken away over recent years. I just said to mum, like, you know, you look out there and you can see we robins playing and the squirrels running up and down the trees. That's so different to when we were kids and that that was all obscure. And yet we just accepted it. That was normal. And I think kids have a great ability just to adapt to their circumstances and get on. It's only when you have time, probably as an adult, to look back on it, but you see that uh, uh, it was very, very different. It was peculiar. Um, it was a threatening environment. What are your earliest memories then of the Troubles? Um, well, I, I heard the Troubles more than anything. Uh, and that, you know, because we lived in East Belfast, you would, you would hear the bombs going off uh, if there was a, a bombing or whatever across the city. Um, I never, ever remember a time when there weren't police officers at our house uh, as growing up. So there'd be specials in the early days who would have guarded our house. And um, then from the mid-70s, my dad had a permanent police escort, um, which was two police cars and four police officers the whole time. Um, so, you know, we always remember that. And those guys became like friends because, you know, we, we looked up to them that they were actually looking after our dad and protecting him. And, uh, you know, so there was, there was that sort of endearment uh, with them. And, and they, many of them did become friends and kept contact because they only did like a two, two and a half year stint each time. Um, so it was, um, uh, you know, out of all of that at school, I remember there was a period of time during the hunger strike whenever we had to be taken to school in the back of a police car. Um, I remember that quite vividly, probably. Harshest memory was whenever my, I remember the front of our house being bombed in 1977, and I remember my brother and my dad being shot at 
um, one night in Belfast and they were coming across town in the back of a car. So you have all of those things which now you start to reflect upon, you realise that not only heard the troubles and witnessed them and all the rest of it, you were part of your family was caught up in. Well, before maybe we go into some of that, um, just explain then, you talked about you know bombs going off outside, police officers uh, outside the house, and all of that going on. But in the house, what was in the house like? What was your dad like as a dad? Incredibly tranquil. He wouldn't have known my dad was Apple. Um, now, on, on Saturday mornings, um, you know, we would have had a, a fairly normal ritual in that we'd all come downstairs in our pajamas and we'd have watched the Bonanza or something else you wouldn't know. It was an old western that was on TV on a Saturday morning. And we'd, we'd, we'd watch uh, a couple of favourite stuff, Laurel and Hardy, and, and all those things were on the Saturday morning and have a good old laugh. Um, and your dad would watch these too? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was with us on a, on a Saturday morning. That was kind of his, his time with us, his big time with us. Um, um, the, 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 those things were, were very precious as, as kids. The rest of the week, like, my dad just wasn't there. <laughs> Sunday was a really busy day for him in particular because he always at least two, maybe three church services. And um, I always remember, like, Sunday dinners, though. He was always home for great, like, family Sunday roast. And, and that was a tradition which I didn't keep up with my kids today. No matter what happens, we always have a Sunday roast. Um, we all catch up on a Sunday for lunch um, or dinner. But um, at home, Dad was, as I say, very um, very quiet. He, he read a lot. Um, he, he was good company. If you ever needed any advice or things, he always had something to tell you. Um, and uh, him and Mum provided us really with a, a real, I suppose, a, a, a real shelter um, from all the things that were happening outside. Did your parents tell you and, and your siblings that they that they loved you? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, our, I mean, my dad was first and foremost a, a, a pastor of a church, and um, I think that that really came across in his kindness to individuals. And, and certainly as, as a parent, the first thing a dad did with us every morning before he would go out. He'd always make a wee bit of time, just as a, as a wee group, just have a wee family prayer with us and ask God to keep us safe that day and to bless us in the work that we had to do and, and pray for maybe things that he was involved in that day. So mum and dad would always do that. Um, every single day would be a day pass that they would not do that in the morning before we'd go out. And um, even to this day, I know my mum prays for us every single day and for all our grandchildren and great-grandchildren and she tells them that. And I think it's... It sounds a cliche, it sounds like a twitty, but you know, the family that prays together stays together. There is an element of truth in that, and that if you're able to come close to your spiritual being and to the spirit that you believe in as a family, be honest, ashamed about that. Um, it actually means that the barriers of life, uh, um, step up or lip, all that's broken down, and you're able to be very close as a family. And even to this day, you know, like earlier today, I was. I have an older sister who's about 10, 11 years older than me and chatted her on the phone for about 15, 20 minutes at some point today and to my mum. So we still have that constant chat and banter, just uh, as a family, we're all still very close. Do you miss your dad? Yes, very much. So um, dad was, I, I, I kind of said different cycles of relationship that I had with my dad. So it was father's son, you know, growing up and all of that. And then I started to work for him. So it was kind of an employee-employer relationship as well. 
But then we became really good mates. It was a lovely relationship. So God was 40 years older than me, 39, 40 years older than me. But we became, certainly for the last 20 years of his life, really, really close companions and mates and uh, confidants. We could share things. Um, uh, first probably 10, 12 years of married life, um, Dad would have rung me every night at midnight. <laughs> Which, you know, I'll explain to the missus that that's my dad again. He's on the phone. But every night at midnight, even if I'd been out with my dad that day, he'd still rung me at midnight, had a good out banter for maybe 15, 20 minutes, just about what would have happened that day, what we should do the next day, and plans. And so a really good, um, friendly relationship with him. And uh, you do miss that. You know, there's things that I look back on. I wish Dad was here to share that with him or tell him about that. Um, but in another sense, I don't miss, I don't feel I've missed out on anything, it's probably a better way of saying it, in that with such a full relationship that, you know, that relationship was to its absolute extreme. Um, I think my brother and my sisters would say the same, you know, Dad gave everything to us. And so it was a very, um, you know, there, there's no regrets there that anything was held back. Can you reflect then on your, your last moments with your father and what was that like for you? Yeah, look, that, that had been um, growing weaker and was quite sick. Um, it just seems growing old. And I, I had come back from London um, and uh, I actually decided uh, I'll stay in the house. At this point, Dad was uh, we private room downstairs. And I actually um, was chatting to him that night and just holding his hand and stuff. And he, he would have wee conversations and then go over to sleep. But I just decided I would stay in the house that night. I remember just slept on the floor of the room that he was in. And um, uh, next morning, said bye-bye to him. And uh, he was fine. He was in good, good spirit. And I went up the road to Ballymena to my advice centre. And I, I'll, I'll never forget it, but I, I got a call. It was around about um, probably 10, 10, 15 in the morning. Um, my sister, Rhonda, rang me. And she said, I... Ian, Dad, Dad's definitely going here. He's, 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 he's slipping away. And she put the phone to my mum was there, put the phone to my dad's. And I think she said, bye bye, son. Which, um, you know, was pretty, you know. And I was actually, there was a guy in front of me at my desk, and I seen advice, and I just said, oh, God, look, I'm sorry, mate, I have to go here. Um, my father's passing away. I think it was more of a shock to him, you know. And uh, I, I just just left the office immediately. And I wouldn't like to say, but I didn't know how I got to Belfast so quickly. But I, I got following the Belfast into the house, into my aunt's where he was. And he literally just, just passed away. But my mum my and two of my sisters and my brother were there. And then my other sister and myself, we kind of arrived together. And uh, our, our really good friend, David Magdalene, had just arrived. He was a very close family friend. And uh, I just remember hugging David. Um, we were going up, he was Uncle David, of course, you know, he was just a mate. And um, my dad and dad was there, you know, but he was, mum said, like, it was the most peaceful moment. Like, he, he was never in pain, never in any anguish. Um, and, uh, you know, up to, to her, he says, like, you know, if you could have a, a beautiful death, you know, it was something that just passed really, really tranquilly. And, uh, you know, and, and I think that makes us happy. I mean, I, I, I've friends, I, I lost my brother in law. The, the year before dad died and he had a, a terrible fight with cancer 
and to see someone in their mid to late 50s battling with cancer and being, you know, troubled and perplexed about puts on the rest of the family. That was really harsh. Um, but that had a really full life and he passed very, very easily. And he lived, he lived six lives, you know, he did more than one life and nine people have done him. You know, many peoples have done over several lives. So, uh, you know, there's, there's no regret there as such. When you were driving from Balamain into Belfast, what, what was going on in your head? Can't remember. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to remember that. And that was just how to get, just knew how to get there and get there safely. Yeah. And, uh, but as I say, the thing about life was that, uh, and, and about that was, it was so, um, there was no, there was no regrets there. There was nothing I hadn't said to my dad. There was nothing I hadn't ever completed. And there's nothing he had never said to me. I think I'd, I'd asked him that morning to have a wee prayer with us before I went off the off the Balamina. And he, he put his hand on us and just said, oh, God bless you. And there was a wee pat on the head. So you remember precious things like that, you know? And, um, and, and there, just, you know, you've got some really super special memories and some things that really make you laugh and some things that jerk a tear out of you, you know? Well, you talked also about you know the impact of, of witnessing some some pretty horrific uh, incidents, particularly around your father. You know, having having that uh, and those experiences as a child must have an impact on you psychologically. Did it affect your mental health? I think this is the thing we we now do, especially as, as men. I start to talk about our, our mental health. You know, was. You never would have talked ten years ago, Rodney. You've never talked about um, depression. You know, too strong to be depressed. You know, that. I must have must have had an impact. You know, and in this day and age, either people have got softer or have got um, just more aware, which is probably a kinder way you know, of the fact that you know all of these pressures take their toll. Um, I tease my twin brother. He's got a, a shock of dark brown hair, and mine's. Um, light white hair now. <laughs> I don't say that this had more of a toll on me than it did have on, on, on you. Um, I, I, I really don't know. Um, but I, I do think it, it has this pressure. But I think it's, it's how we get over these things. Now, I have a very strong personal faith. And I, I do believe that if you cast your cares on your saviour, that, that does carry a lot of the burdens for you. Um, that if you recognise, if, if you really truly believe that, that, that um, there's, don't fret for tomorrow because there's nothing that can be achieved by worry uh, and even though worry is a very natural place to go I try to chastise myself if I start to worry about things because um, in, in my life in the, the world you're, you're constantly under pressure or accusation or whatever and if you worry about those things you wouldn't get up in the morning so you just try to set them to the side I also think I have a way of dealing with, with criticism in that most people really know me for whom what I am. Um, they have a, a persona of me or an understanding of me of the media, which is a snapshot of me at particular times. And I, I, I tend to give everyone the benefit of the doubt in that they don't really know me. So if they're saying this stuff about me, they're saying about, the, about this stereotype of this person called Ian Paisley. But they're not really saying it about me. And I can kind of dismiss it like that and saying if, if they knew me, they, they just wouldn't say those things or they would have a different idea or a different approach. So that, that's kind of the way I deal with it. Um, and I think for me, that's 
that's a healthy way of doing it. And if, um, the, the contaminating the uh, abuse and accusations that go along with, with the sort of life that they actually are involved in and the sort of um, politics that we're involved in. Uh, and so I stand back from it. So that's how I try to deal with it. Has it taken its toll? It probably has. Um, I think about it, everyone's honest and probably no more so than anyone else in, in stressful jobs or with stressful lives. When you were growing up uh, as, a, as a young Protestant and you were you were watching the troubles unfold, were you ever tempted to fight back? Oh, yes, um, definitely. And it's, it's only, I believe, um, for the grace of God, there go I. It's only because of good instruction from good parents and good people around us that um, uh, and uh, strong faith that you don't uh, take things into your own hands, that you... Um, recognise that one day there will be a real judgment and a real um, um, reckoning for all of these things. Um, but that didn't um, diminish my teenage anger and my youthful anger that I want to do something about this. Uh, this is terrible. This is a disgrace. What would um, what would you have done but your faith stopped you? I, I think that who knows where those things would have led. But if you got into the sort of company where you'd have been easily pliable or easily led, who knows where that would have done and uh, where that would have taken us. Um, but I, I, I do know that I was, um, as, as a young man, very crossed by what was happening to my friends, to my country, to the businesses around us, to the fact that um, you know our country was being torn apart. I mean, when I was a kid, say 16, 17, all employment was high 20s, you know, 20 to 29%. There was literally no prospect for the lads and girls I was going to school with, but unless they were going particularly into business, there was literally very little prospects for them. Those sort of things really did impact on you, that your whole country was going to be in this kind of war-torn state. But I also think it's a huge advertisement for the power of um, prayer and for the power of um, a godly people. Uh, I mean, put it like this. If this place had been called Kosovo, we would have had a civil war that started in the 1970s, and Lord knows where it would have ended. Um, but Northern Ireland had all of the ingredients to be another Kosovo, another Balkans, another um, Palestine-Israel struggle, and it actually never went that far. Like Over 3,000 people were murdered, um, thousands of people injured, millions of pounds worth, billions of pounds worth of damage done, but it never went over the top in the Civil War, and I think that is a real advertisement for the fact that the Christian people of Northern Ireland, small sea Christian people, actually took the view that, you know, this, this would work itself out uh, and would get better. And I think that that is a, an advertisement, I feel like it's one of the positives that I try to take out of it. But uh, I, I can fully understand um, the, the anger that, that people had and the fact that they really wanted to fight back and do something back. But my desire was to see the government fight back. My desire was to see the police being allowed and the army and the UDR being allowed to fight back and the growing disbelief that they were never allowed to do so. Well, the idea, the premise of this podcast is to you know, to look at different perspectives and see different different views. When you reflect on that period of time, can you see, can you understand why the likes of Sinn Féin and, and the IRA had their views? Well, well listen, as a, as a student of history and as a, uh, a person who really you know, 
try to look into some of the things. I can understand that people have a different point of view, but I don't believe that there was ever sufficient discrimination in Northern Ireland from either community that justified the firing of one single bullet or that justified the blowing up of one single shot. You know, it was it was never that atrocious that the only thing to do was to murder British soldiers, police officers, to blow up towns. Um, and that's the thing that really got me. I mean, we can go to other zones of the world where there's been conflict and the uh, torture of people and torture which led to people fighting back was very, very different. That excuse doesn't pertain to the Tolster, and I think that that's the that's the sickening thing that you know someone else says, "What was that all about?" Um, because there's no justification for it. I've started watching the journey, which uh, you've probably seen. Have you seen the, ver- I, I the version of you? I helped advise some of the guys on that. Even just the term, the journey, I think is appropriate. I mean, your father and Martin McGuinness were certainly on a journey. Uh, what do you think of, of the work that, that your dad did with Martin McGuinness? Um, probably what she says, that physical journey in the, in the back of the car and that conversation never actually occurred. But what that film captured was a moment of, 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 of uh, how things actually changed and, and a series of conversations that allowed that change. Um, in, in terms of that, like, and this is the thing that whenever people just deal with a snapshot of a person, that they don't understand the, the whole person. But I think my father was in such a place and had such good political standing that he was able to bring the community to a point and then lead them to a point that might have been uncomfortable or difficult for others to be able to achieve. But he had the power of charisma, the power of his own credibility, and the political skill to say, well, actually, they can take you to a difficult place, but the outcome will be better. And um, I think that's what what he was, not with his skill set, that allowed him to achieve. Um, he ultimately believed, and I noticed we're very close to these negotiations with Gazan, but he ultimately believed that when we got Sinn Féin to accept the legitimacy of the police, that that was the Rubicon moment, that was when they crossed the Rubicon. Because right up until then, the, the Sinners wanted to be able to have the excuse that police weren't legitimate, the crime wasn't legitimate. But the day that you sign up to endorse the crime services of the state, um, you're Irish republicanism that had a violent streak was over because you just you just couldn't then legitimise attacking a crime service that you'd now legitimised. And whenever we got them to cross that Rubicon, there was no going back. And it's at that point where we picked up the pace, my dad picked up the pace and led the country to the point where we could do the sort of deal and have the sort of arrangement that lasted not long for 10 years of very stable government. And... Um, uh, to me, that was the, the seminal moment in it all. Um, you know, understanding the precise moment at which Sinn Féin could not go back. Right up until that point, Sinn Féin could have gone back, could have had a FARC issue again, could have had a Northern Bank issue again, we could have had all of those things. But once we got them over the line on acceptance of the Crown Services, the Crown State, and that, that led to the point where even Martin McGuinness said that people who killed police officers were traitors to Ireland. That to me was huge, and uh, you know, for the ideology to put yourself in the in the shoes for an Irish Republican 
who believed that you could have killed those police officers to then be in the, the same shoes saying that it's a treachery to Ireland to kill those police officers. It's massive. And I think that's it's those points which, uh, to me, were very significant and was down to my father's leadership. Tell me something you admired about Martin McGuinness. Um, I remember someone put the question to me, what is it about the former IRA terrorist Martin McGuinness that you actually like? And I said the word former. <laughs> You know, the fact that it had Martin was a very personable person. You know, that's the first thing. Of, of all the people I negotiated with or worked with in, uh, uh, the, uh, in the government and uh, in that organisation, he was very personable. He both walked away with clear understanding as to what he thought. The rest of them were, again, that probably was down to the fact that he was very comfortable in, in terms of what he could deliver and his own sense of power. Um, others, you never really got that sense or were able to get closer to. So I, I remember I was, when I was appointed junior minister, I was appointed by both my father and by Martin McGuinness for that role. So I, I, I had to work very closely with both of them and, and got to know how, uh, Martin McGuinness, I think, reasonably well during that time. And I was the first, I was with myself, Peter Robinson and Nigel Dodds, were the first DUP people to sit down and negotiate with Sinn Féin. Um, so it was really a, that opening point was where we, we had that relationship and Martin Gass was the person who was appointed by Sinn Féin negotiated with us. And was it strange um, then to have Martin McGuinness around the house, you know, because he was so friendly with your father and he, he developed that great relationship? Yeah, and I wouldn't, um, and this is the thing, I think probably a lot has read into the fact that I think it's very important to him we're not losing bodies and such. Uh, it never became like that, that sort of thing. But there was a huge deal of respect and uh, acknowledgement of other people. And the thing, I've said this before, but it's worth repeating, Rodney, that um, Martin McGuinness was what, 15, 20 years younger than my dad. Um, my dad was in his 80s when he became First Minister. Um, and Martin was, McGuinness gave my father the respect he deserved as an older person. And that, to me, meant a heck of a lot more than all the other nonsense that goes on in politics. You accord a person respect and dignity because of their age and their standing, and you don't take advantage of that. And my dad was very good at taking advantage of the fact that he was an older guy, and he could, you know, I'm now a fella here, and he could use that to his advantage. But, you know, at the same time, there was, a, there was respect and accordance given to the person's place and standing. And I think that... Um, McGuinness, Martin McGuinness was able to do that. I think that led to a respectful relationship between the two of them and between us. And it is the case that whenever my father ceased being First Minister and left the leadership of the party and the church, it was interesting that people who you would have thought would have been in more regular contact and given contact didn't stay in contact. It's understandable. They're busy with their own lives. But Martin McGuinness did make time to keep that contact. Um, and to me, that says a lot about the individual. Does that hurt you, you know, knowing that there's certain people, possibly even in the DUP, who didn't keep that contact, but Martin well, making us could? Be very clear, none of this hurts me. Um, uh, I, I, I try, you know, it's probably just part of my personality, that I don't carry hurt that other people try to conflict with, but they set it aside. And I'm very good, I think, at uh, unpacking that. Uh, and doing that, I think it hurts them, it hurts their standing, it hurts their reputation, because uh, you know they were the people who lost. 
out in terms of having that um, post-leadership relationship, um, which would have been very valuable to them and uh, helping help even close the circle in their own lives. Uh, so I think that, you know, that they were the losers. Now, I, I carry no loss and no hurt from that because uh, I think I'm, I'm stronger than that. What do you think leadership today at the heads of storms, you know, the heads of government, what do you think it's lacking when you look and reflect back on what your father and Martin McGuinness achieved? Uh, it's very hard it's, it's, to, to, to answer that uh, fairly um, because you're talking about very, very different beasts and different circumstances. You know, we, were, we were immediately post-troubles um, stabilising the government. We're now into more a managerial type government. Um, and uh, my father had, what, 40 years invested in it. We've now got people who are career politicians who have a few years invested in it and are moving transiently through this, um, which makes it very, very difficult. And that's, you know, that's a good thing. Politics has become boring. And that's a very, very good thing. When I was growing up, politics was not a boring place. It was a bloody place. Um, so it's good that politics to a degree is boring because um, that's a sense of normality. Um, but, uh, you know, there probably are not the big beasts in politics that we had um, in the early days. And well, it was Jerry Fitt, John Hume, and Paisley, John Taylor, people like that. I mean, big, big characters who had the force of personality. That is gone. Um, you see it. You see flashes of it from time to time, but you don't see it over long periods. And uh, you know, that, that is something that's gone. Is that a good thing? Some people say they want a good manager and just want to see the thing delivered and don't want any of the excitement around it. That's for the people to dwell, or to dwell on. Um, big beasts add a lot of colour to it and a lot of excitement as well, though, so a bit of that could be missing. When did you last cry? Um, I really wept. <laughs> well, this sounds strange. I didn't actually cry when my dad died, but um, before he was buried, I was driving home um, from uh, I picked my, my daughter up. She was in the States, picked up from the airport. I was driving home and um, went, was driving down this country road. And unfortunately, a little dog ran out in front of our car, and I couldn't swerve because it would have gone over the ditch. And I couldn't swerve into the road because there was a massive tractor right beside me as the dog ran into the thing. The dog would run out to bark at the tractor, and I went right over the top of the dog and just, just killed it outright. And I remember stopping the car and getting out and picking the wee dog up, like it was just real. And uh, I wept like a baby. Wept like an absolute child over killing that wee dog on, on the road. And uh, the owner came out and seen me. The news made it a little bit two miles from where I lived. <laughs> they, were, they were embarrassed. The way I was just completely gone. But I think it was the emotion of everything else that had happened in the run-up. And that had given me actually uh, a lot of physical tearful release um, don't think I've, I've actually wept since then so I was about four almost five years ago Is crying a sign of weakness? No definitely not um, I think it's an emotion it's a, it's a positive emotion and I am an emotional person and you know I'll, I'll, uh, I'll be emotional and, and recognise something that's even twee or sad if I'm watching a film and, uh, if you do feel much about that, you, you should express it so it's not sad and, and understand it. Um, and I think your emotions should be open. I think it makes you a warmer human being. But it's definitely not a sign of weakness. In fact, the ability to be able to 
to do it and talk about it openly, I think is actually a sign of strength and helps others. How important is love to you? Very important. Um, as I say, my whole life has been surrounded by it, from my parents and from my family, and from my, my own family, my, my wife and my kids, to have that, uh, that expression of love. I think it's important to tell a person that, that you love them, even if it's repetitive. It's important to, to actually say it and say these words and to mean it, of course. Um, uh, it's important to um, express your, your, your love uh, verbally um, to a person. And for the way that we experiment the other day, um, during lockdown, the kids were all around. One of my daughters is married, and the other one's getting married, and my sons are finishing school. But we're around with them where it was really, during that really good weather, uh, good weather still, and, and uh, we're having a bit of a barbecue in the garden. And we decided to, to play a wee game and say something really complimentary. About the person beside you, you know, and, and, and we did that. We went round, you know. So he thinks, well, I, so it's no kind of secret, but my wife and daughters don't like my beard. So they they made very complimentary remarks about my beard, <laughs> which was part of the game, you know. And, uh, but it, it, it's a, it's it's a good challenge actually. Then at a at a thoughtful level, turn and say, look. What can I say that I haven't said that is a real compliment about something you have done for me today or, uh, or what I have done for you? And can I express my love in a different way to you? And uh, so, yeah, love is incredibly important um, uh, from my kids and from my wife and back to them. Do you remember the moment that you fell in love with your wife? Oh, almost immediately. Um, Fiona, isn't uh, it? That's right, yeah, almost immediately. Um, I was, believe it or not, it was, um, I was a student at Queen's. Um, I had this Friday and Saturday job in Dundonald International Ice Bowl. You know, I, was, I was one of the guys who skated around the, the ice rink, picked the kids up, they'd fall over and give them the instructions as to how to, how to skate properly and how to stop properly. And uh, it was a, on a Friday night, it was particularly useful for noticing very good looking girls who were maybe on the ice and you would go over and help them skate a bit, you know. But uh, certainly Fiona Paisley, or Fiona Curry, she, she caught my eye there. And uh, we got we, we met there. And really, I mean, I, I asked her out shortly after that and uh, have not been able to um, stop falling deeper and deeper in love with her every week. And we're now married 30 years. Fantastic. Tell me about Trump then. Is it right that you and him are, are buzzing buddies or what? what's the story there? Yeah, I would say that we're, we are good friends. Um, I met him in 2006. Um, he, uh, <clears throat> I visited him at his office um, and uh, got to know him. Um, my father also got to know him. I actually presented him with a lovely picture of my dad and him at Trump Tower, um, which we'd taken when we were there one time, and uh, got him presented to him. I know he has it framed and in his office. Um, but I, do you like him? Got to know, I, I do actually like him. I think he's a character. I think he's very, very different from his television persona. Um, very much a numbers guy. Always wants to talk business. Always wants to talk with the numbers in me. Um, introduced me to his sons. Uh, one of his sons over with me and stayed with me. Um, I have met his daughter. Frankly, an absolutely lovely lady. Um, uh, so I've, I've had the pleasure of meeting the, the whole family. And of course, his wife, Melania. Um, and I think I'm the only, or one of the few politicians who meets him since he's been president, 
one of the few British politicians who's met him every single year of his presidency and was at lunch with him. So I, uh, I keep that contact. And I'm invited to the White House, not as a politician, but as a family friend, which is a, a lovely, quirky thing to have. And uh, it, it's, been, look, it's been a very useful contact. I think life is about the people you know and about utilising that knowledge and experience that you draw from them with what they can draw from you. And uh, <clears throat> I've had that um, experience, and uh, I think uh, I'm, uh, I've, as a result of that, there's, there's something to contribute more to public life as a result. Do you think Donald Trump has any faults? Mm, of course he does. Everyone has feet of clay. In fact, if you don't want to see a person's fault, never meet them. Uh, my, my heroes in life are uh, some sporting heroes, people like Joey Dunlop and Robert Dunlop, William Dunlop, but they all have feet of clay, they all have things that are, are wrong, um, which they, they knew could be done better. And uh, of course, but um, um, I have lots of faults, I, and uh, so it's not surprising that other people have faults. What are your faults? There's far too many in this podcast to admit to or to go into. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, I first admit that I'm sometimes too carefully. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, uh, blase about things when I should be uh, different about things. Um, I try to, um, you know, I try to put myself in a place now where I do have much more self-awareness uh, and try about people's expectations of me and all the investments take me over 50 years to get to that point. I'm slowly but surely trying to get there. Um, and I think you have to um, every so often take a breather and reflect on doing what you are and uh, how people perceive you and is there things that you're doing um, that could change people's perception for the better. And I try to do that. Just on that, on perception, you, know, you will know because you, you referred to it earlier or you alluded to it earlier, you know, the perception that some people have of Ian Paisley. You know, they talk mm-hmm. about free holidays and all that kind of stuff. How do you respond to those kind of things when you hear them? Um, well, first of all, a lot of it has been self-inflicted by me. And being self-aware, you've got to accept that, you know, if you hadn't made those mistakes, um, people, you know, wouldn't have had those ideas about you. And so you first thing you have to take on board that, you know, this is something that you could therefore achieve. And that's what I, I, I try to do, and to acknowledging but it's also a thing that you don't have things that are attacks on you. Uh, anything that, that attacks you, what's we saying, you know, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Uh, well, it certainly should make you more resilient. And I think I'm a very, very resilient person. But I think I'm also a person who is reflective on the resilience of that planet and try to actually say, well, you know, um, I mean, I'm the first one to make a joke about those things. And I joke about me at them because, you know, I realise, you know, oh, that was an error, that was a mistake. And the strength has been to admit your mistakes. What stands between you and happiness? Um, at the moment, absolutely nothing. I'm a very, very happy and content, I suppose. Contentment is more of how we put it. You know, because there are things which, um, you know, you can't walk through life with a big smile on your face. So life is just a bottle, it's not. I think if I complex and concerning things both um, privately and um, publicly um, but I think contentment is a very very sought after place 
and having personal contentment, inner contentment, spiritual contentment, family contentment, love contentment is where you should strive to be. And I, I try each day to get to that point. And I do very specifically in the last year or so, I've taken time very deliberately each day to give myself space for me. Um, uh, I mean, my phone goes 24-7, just doesn't stop. Um, people, you want a piece of action. And I, first of all, I have to appreciate that I'm in a place where I can help folk. So I, I don't resent that, but I have to at times turn it off and just go and take moments for me. And whether that's a, a short walk or just maybe taking time in the morning to have a proper breakfast on my own and just reflect about things or listen to nice music, I will do that. And I will try to give myself uh, that space. You mentioned earlier that game that you played with your family where you say something complimentary about, you know, about the company that you're in. Tell me something complimentary about Jerry Adams. Um, that's a very nice grey beard you have, Jerry. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the be facetious. I, know. Um, I think the thing about Jerry Adams is that he is incredibly resilient. Um, and, uh, you know... <laughs> is able to hold a line that even though people, and he knows probably is not credible, he has the resilience and the ability to hold that line no matter what. That is a huge strength, but it does not bother you. Well, tell me something complimentary about Arlene Foster. Uh, again, I think Arlene is an incredibly re resilient woman um, and has shown that, that she can take on really better by personal criticism and um, go through it and come out the other end. I'm not going to say come out the other end unscathed, but come out the other end strong and determined um, because I don't think any of this stuff ever leaves you unscathed. Um, so I, I think that is very much a strength that Arlene has, um, a real determination. Um, she's also actually, to be fair to Arlene, I, I find her, um, when you get through all of the politics and the stuff around, it's actually quite a good fun girl and, um, you know, enjoys a bit of banter and a good joke. Well, in terms of your own career progression, did you ever imagine yourself as leader of the DUP? Uh, no, I know others thought that was where I wanted to be. And Why not? That's what, well, pardon? Why not? Um, well... I, I have always had my own view of what I want to do. I knew from when I was a kid, when I looked like politics, and when my dad took us to Westminster as kids, I always said, yeah, I'd love to be here, I'd love to work here. And when I got to understand it, and when I think I developed the skills of being able to articulate an argument, or articulate a viewpoint, and make a case for voiceless people, I think I found that that was my niche, and that was where I really wanted to be. And certainly my political career was to get me to Westminster to be a member of Parliament to, to deliver things for um, my community. I always say there's always been two or three things that you're trying to achieve at any one moment you know, for your community. And that's why I try to be through professionally and develop my career that way by delivering things for folk. And um, uh, that's what I do. But it's never, uh, I say this genuinely and honestly, it's never been in my ambition that I want to be the leader of the DUP, that that's my next step. I don't see it as that. I, I, I see very much my step was fulfilling my role as a member of parliament and that's what I really love and enjoy doing. And I've also probably seen it too close from the other side as well. Uh, that I, I, I understand a lot of people think that's it's a really fulfilling thing to have. It's a very restrictive place to be 
being a leader, it's also an incredibly lonely place to be. And um, to desire that, you know, you're going to a place that is both restrictive and lonely. And uh, yeah, that's not necessarily a place that I want to be. Do you think Arlene's lonely? I think all leaders, leadership by its very nature is lonely um, because the buck stops with you. It doesn't stop with anyone else. It doesn't stop with the team. It stops with you. As you reflect on your life, what's your greatest regret? Genuinely, I, I don't have a list of things that I, I wish I'd done differently because all of the things that maybe people would say should be regrets, I think I've learned from them and that made me the person that I am and, you know, helped me. In a way, I, I think probably uh, getting to the point, life, if you like, is almost lived, it should be lived in reverse. If you knew the things that, that, that are now, if you knew what that was going to be when you were a younger person, you would probably end up being a very, very different person. And regret is sometimes about not having the foresight to see certain things and saying they were other avenues that we could have gone down. Um, and uh, but that, that's living life looking in the rear view mirror and uh, uh, if you do that you miss the scenery in front of you uh. very poetic what is it like now the Ian Paisley that we that we see today and what is Ian Paisley's view of his Catholic neighbours I knew very very probably because we're brought up in a, in a, in a religious household I knew very early age the distinction about people's identity versus people's religious views in the church. So I, I always had a, had a respect for that and, and for difference of, uh, for understanding that you know to have a different religious view was to have a different religious view. Um, it wasn't um, something which, which made me distrust people as such. I think it's important to draw that distinction. Um, however. Now, the Northern Ireland, I kind of see it in, in my kids, Rodney. You know, when I was, I mean, my eldest daughter's 26, my youngest son is 15. Um, to them, the Northern Ireland that I grew up in is very much a foreign country. It's a completely different, alien country that they're reading about what their grandfather did as part of their history and, and even what their, what their dad's involved in as part of their kind of social political history. And it's, it, it, it's alien to the sort of lives they now live because Northern Ireland is in a much refreshed and better place. And it, the Northern Ireland identity is now something that everyone can be proud of and aspire to and aspire to want to change. And I think that that's um, you know, a really positive thing that, that both sections of this divided community have grasped that, that we actually have so much more in common as a people and that we are so much stronger together when we put together and play as Team Northern Ireland. We get so much more for our, our country. Because my desires are the exact same as um, the desires of my Catholic friends for their kids. And I have many Catholic friends, Roman Catholic friends, who have children the same age as mine. We socialise with them. I go on holidays with them. Uh, we're friends. Um, um, one of my, well, I can say two or three of my closest friends are Roman Catholics. We're at my daughter's wedding. Um, and uh, we have very, very close friends about them. I think it, I have a huge respect uh, for that, you know. So. How often do you pray? Every every day, several times a day. Um, what do you pray for? 
Um, well, grace to get through certain things, um, uh, wisdom, um, uh, pray for, for my friends, uh, for those who are ill, um, for those who are, are mourning, um, uh, things that will come to me when healing through the day. Um, I think a prayer should be a constant conversation. It shouldn't be something that's for a particular time and place, but it should be a constant conversation between you and your Savior. Do you pray for the First Minister and the Deputy First Minister? Yeah, I do. I pray for our country. I pray for the leaders of our country. Um, I pray for our monarch. I pray for our Prime Minister. Um, I pray that there's wisdom. I've got wisdom when we're dealing with foreign countries as well. But does that, uh, show, does that show your tendency then to reach out? Um, because you're a member of the DUP, you're Ian Paisley's son, and here you're praying for Michelle O'Neill. What does that say about you and who you are? Um, well, well, I, I hope you know. I, I, I hope that I, on a very personal level, it just shows that I am a person of, of faith, and that that faith is more important to me than all of the political stuff that we get engaged in. Um, that uh, and that my, my my prayers are, and I hope they're not viewed as selfish, because obviously I'm, I'm praying that things will work out for us, and I have a particular view of what working out for us means, <laughs> you know. So I hope it's not seen as a selfish thing that you know. Uh, you Lord, make this happen my way. You know, no, it's you know, it's, it's, it's asking God for grace that people will understand and, and will serve the, 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 the country well and the people well. Um, and as I say, I, I do have to pray for our own prime minister and for our own leaders across the country and for my colleagues and for my friends. And when I go into meetings and have things up, I'm not averse to asking God for help and strength and have wisdom and get up to speak in Parliament that will have the ability to say the things that need to be said in the way that they have to be said. Um, and uh, some people who have no faith think that's just a crutch, psychological crutch to rely on, but I, I view it as a, 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 that I couldn't live life without that. that it's, it's central to my identity. I remember asking a, another um, very well-known person about prayer and I actually asked did that person ever pray for the IRA? And and his response was, yes, of course, I pray for everyone. Have you ever prayed for the IRA? Um, I've prayed for the troubles then, I've prayed for the bombings when I was younger, that our country would be brought to peace, um, and the, the men who were doing this would, would stop and would, would um, understand that what they were doing was wrong. So I prayed at that level, yeah, I mean, I don't think I've ever used the word IRA in my prayers, mind you, but you know what I mean, I prayed specifically for 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 that. Um, and I also think that, frankly, we've actually seen a great answer to prayer in Northern Ireland um, uh, over the years, and it's only whenever you look back on it, you actually see that prayers have been answered. Uh, I think we alluded to earlier, this place could have been a causable, um, and it didn't turn that way. And I think we we'll have to actually turn around and say, well, perhaps that was God answering prayers, but it was stopped before it got that far. What do you think heaven looks like? Um, eyes have not seen and ears have not heard. I could never understand what gifts lie ahead of us. The reason why I say that is my daughter once had to do a speech in school about heaven, um, about faith, and that verse came to mind. But our minds are too weak and too puny to even understand what God actually has ahead for us. Uh, that it's so sublime, so incredible, that we just couldn't comprehend it. So 
I think whatever it is, it's worth living for and getting there. And you think you'll meet your father again? Oh, yeah. I do believe that. Um, I believe that there's sound theological um, passages in the Bible to show that people know each other when they're in heaven and that the, the, the saints of God will know each other. So, yes, absolutely. And I believe it will be a, a very incredible reunion. And finally, if today was your your last day on this earth, what would you say to your wife and children? Um, well, I'd tell them I love them, but I think they're so fed up of hearing that that they already know that. <laughs> so uh, I think it's, it's like, yes, we know that. There's nothing else to tell them. So. Um, no, I think um, I, I would hope that actually they would say, look, there, there was a, a, a very hard-working dad and husband who um, gave us um, really good company and uh, we got something in terms of enjoyment with them. Ian Paisley, thank you. Thank you very much, Rodney. Thank you.